Pete Rose was spending so much money gambling on baseball that he had to take loans, and a lot of those loans came from the mob. Well, that's right. And he was dealing with the wise guys on Long Island. He owed them a half a million dollars. On this Wavemaker Conversations podcast, I pick up where I left off last episode with John Dowd. The going rate for loan sharks is six for five. So for every $5 he owed, he had to pay six. There is no human way you can ever repay that. John Dowd joined the Marines in the 1960s, prosecuted the mafia in the 1970s, and in 1989 was tapped by incoming Major League Baseball Commissioner Bart Giamatti and his deputy, Faye Vincent, to investigate the sport's all-time hit leader, Pete Rose. What I told Faye and Bart is organized crime has a mortgage on the manager of the Cincinnati Reds. Now, how do you record that in Cooperstown? The 225-page Dowd report led to the banishment of Pete Rose from baseball. Now, as this podcast is posting, the current baseball commissioner, Rob Manfred, is considering Pete Rose's appeal to be reinstated, a decision expected by the new year. You're listening to Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. I'm Michael Schulder, and this is part two of my conversation with John Dowd. So Faye Vincent used a term with me that is, is, is echoing in my head now, all these weeks after I've spoken to him. He said, the way your team, the way he and Bart Giamatti and you, John Dowd, approached this investigation was to use a process that he called overwhelmingly fair. And I, said, I stopped him on that term. I said, that's a, that's a powerful term to be overwhelmingly fair. Tell me how you approach the investigation in a way that you considered overwhelmingly fair, which I know has a lot to do in this case with transparency. Well, that's right. I think the credit really belongs to to Bart on the overall subject, although I don't think Faye or I would ever dream of doing it any differently. It's just that Bart really provided the leadership when he said, whatever you do, the world will see. And that, he was not talking figuratively, he was talking literally. From the very beginning, that was the mark. So in my mind, I told the team that we had, whatever we did, the world will see. But from my own experience in running cases, it's not the subject matter that that is primary. It's the integrity with which you do the investigation. That means completeness. That means total rigor and honesty in, in recording information, collating information, etc. So that when you get done, it doesn't matter what the outcome is. You can look anyone in the eye, and particularly Pete Rose, and say, you got a fair shake. We, ch- we tested everything. We looked at everything. Uh, here it is. Read it. Answer these questions. Let your lawyers look at it, etc." So we set out to do a very honest case, but that's the way I did them in the Department of Justice. I mean, 
I, you know, I've probably declined prosecution in, you know, 500, 1,000 cases and very, very rarely brought the case unless I could prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. So that was the standard that we used going forward, and everybody, I had no doubt that the people we selected would behave that way, and that's the way they did. Matter of fact, I would say there were more fans of Pete Rose on this team than than any other ball player. On the legal team. Yeah, on the legal team. And um, and then we had Kevin Hallinan, who was the chief of security for baseball, and uh, Joe Daly, former assistant special agent in charge of the FBI in Cincinnati. The three of us did all of the interviews. And we also decided that we would, once we got through it all, um, we would do we would interview all witnesses three times, so that we were very complete. Because as you know, as you interview people, you learn some things. It's like a prison; you learn some things you didn't know, so you have to peel back and re-interview some people. We did that. We then, on the critical witnesses, there were ten witnesses who had witnessed Pete betting on baseball and the Reds in particular, which was the capital crime, we required them to take it under oath. And we also, you know, pieced together enormous amounts of information, like the phone records and and the financial records, which put together a pretty powerful picture. The other thing that we did, and this again, this was Bart's leadership, and that is I reported to Pete's lawyers every week. Now, in a normal investigation, I would never do that, mainly for fear of obstruction or subination or perjury, people fooling around. I told Bart, I would do that as long as no one fooled with the witnesses. And I also told Rose's lawyers that I would give him a complete report every week and from time to time would share some of the evidence with them as long as there was no monkey business with the evidence or the witnesses. And that, they kept to their word, etc. I dealt with a fellow named Roger Makeley, who was Pete's criminal lawyer, and a very good lawyer. I would say about a week, about a month into the case, we had all the evidence. I mean, we had it. You know, it was like shooting fish in a barrel. We had all the facts. And um, I sat down and gave them to and presented them to and played the tapes to Roger Makeley. So he had the he had the entire case and understood it. What we did after that was we re-interviewed people. We, we locked them in under oath, et cetera. Then Bart said, I want you to take Pete's testimony under oath. Before we get to that testimony, I just want to tell you that before you were hired, Faye Vincent tells me they brought in Pete Rose and they asked him, did you gamble? It was one of those situations where the meeting started and everybody was so busy yucking it up that we never got, never is not the right word, we were slow and I was very impatient. I said to him, look, Mr. Rose, everybody here is having fun. We're here on an important matter. I'm going to ask you a really critical question. And I want you to be very careful. And the place just went dead silent. 
I said, Mr. Rose, I'm going to ask you about betting on baseball. Have you ever bet on a baseball game in which you're an interested party? Have you ever been involved in betting on baseball in any form? And he looked at me and he said, now he'd been warned that that was, of course, the point of the meeting. And he said, no, absolutely not. I bet on everything. I bet on the dogs. I bet on football. I bet on basketball. I don't bet on baseball. I'm not that stupid. I'm not that dumb. I would never do that. And I pushed him. I said, look, I'm going to ask it again with another warning to you that we're going to find out whether you bet on baseball. That is, we are going to do a major investigation. So if you're lying to us, you're compounding an already serious problem. Don't lie to us because we'll find out very quickly. I mean, this is what we're good at. And the question is, again, are you very sure that you have never bet on baseball in any form? And he said, no, I've never done it. I'm too smart for that. I said, okay. We finished the meeting, and I remember saying to you, Broth, and Bart, what do you think? And all three of us agreed that Rose was very credible. His denial was strong, and, uh, you know, we'd been around. I mean, we thought we could smell a lie, and not any one of us thought that Rose was lying to us. And then I asked Faye Vincent, how long did it take you to get from that point, this guy's telling the truth, to... I don't think he's telling the truth. And here's what Faye said. We put John to work, and in no time, he called me and he said, uh, Faye, this guy's been betting on baseball all over here. He said, there are probably 20 guys I've already talked to. It's not going to be difficult. That's right. And it was very quick. Quick, but thorough. In a moment, how John Dowd and his team gathered the evidence against Pete Rose and how Dowd's experience prosecuting the mob impacted his approach. I had a rule as an organized crime prosecutor, which I used to tell the juries, because I never had a clean witness. You know, swans don't swim in the sewer. And, you know, I didn't have any bishops. Every witness I had was a criminal, had been convicted. So I would tell the jury, I don't want you to believe a word out of their mouth unless I can corroborate it independently. And we use the same rule in the, in the Rose case. This is Michael Shoulder. You're listening to Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. You're listening to Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. I'm Michael Shoulder. This is part two of my conversation with John Dowd, whose investigation of Pete Rose, the Dowd Report, led to Rose's banishment from baseball more than 25 years ago. The current commissioner, Rob Manfred, is, as we speak, considering Rose's appeal to be reinstated. We pick up the conversation as the evidence against Rose was accumulating quickly. How did you get that so quickly in the days before we had cell phones? I guess we had car phones then, but people weren't carrying around cell phones. The way we did it is Kevin and Joe and I were doing the interviews. We just went person by person. And I don't know what the real answer is, but my theory is 
why did these 10 people who were not, we had no power to compel because we had no subpoena power. We had power within the game of baseball to compel by reason of the contracts that people signed with the commissioner, but otherwise we had no power. Kevin used to say it was our Irish charm, but I don't think so. I think it was the force of the game. The one thing that I will never, ever forget about this experience was that the game of baseball is in the bone marrow of the American people. And whatever rich, poor, whatever their circumstances, when you, when you knock on their door and you say, I represent the commissioner of baseball and I'm investigating Pete Rose, I understand you have some information about it. I'd like to cooperate. Out of 113 witnesses, I can recall two who balked temporarily, but always came around and talked to us. And where they were remarkably candid. I mean, some people tend to be guarded and hold back a little bit, but they, it was just remarkable cooperation, better than anything I'd ever witnessed in the organized crime section uh, or the tax division when I was there interviewing people. I think it's the force of the game. So go on and tell me then, you know, what was it, uh, what was it that you learned and how quickly you learned? Well, we learned, we, you know, we the 10 witnesses all witnessed in one form or another or heard Pete bet um, on the Reds. And so we had 10 separate unconnected witnesses who all witnessed Pete betting on the Reds. That And that corrobor- the corroboration for that were the betting records. The corroboration for that were the bank records. The corroboration for that was the, the way that Pete's modus operandi, if you will, the way he placed calls to the middlemen who called the bookmakers to place the bets and then the call back from the bookmakers to the middlemen to Pete. It was the phone records of the Cincinnati Reds because they had operators. When Pete placed a call to his middleman, it was recorded by the, the telephone operators in the Cincinnati Reds organization. So the team we had back in Washington the unsung heroes, about nine or ten of them, lawyers and paralegals. As we gathered this information, the documents and uh, bank records, etc., I have a terrible, terrible habit which I'm known for amongst the youngsters, and that is everything has to be in a chronology. Witness chronologies, document chronologies, overall chronologies. So that's all they did. It was very boring work, but they put it all together. And lo and behold, when you see it all lined up, because that's the way human events occur, you then see uh, what Pete did, who he did it with, how he did it. And that dictated further interviews. So we knew that, you know, we had an extremely serious problem, a historic problem. And I have to pause you right there because you said something and you talked about, you know, integrity and, you know, how you need to conduct yourself. So you're talking about how lawyers conduct themselves. It applies to all of us. And when you, and you talk just now about the importance of this tedious work. I just can't imagine how helpful that will be to young people listening to this now. And when they are assigned in school, for example, work that seems tedious 
and how important it is sometimes and how relevant it is to do tedious things with all your heart. Well, that's the heart and soul of the case. That's the bread and butter that's going to either give, give you whatever answer that you're driving for is, you know, did he bet on the Reds? Did he bet on baseball or, or not? You had to be very careful. But I had a rule as an organized crime prosecutor, which I used to tell the juries, because I never had a clean witness. You know, swans don't swim in the sewer. And, you know, I didn't have any bishops. So every witness I had was a criminal, had been convicted. So I would tell the jury, I don't want you to believe a word out of their mouth unless I can corroborate it independently. And we use the same rule in the, in the Rose case. I had some people who did have convictions, so we had to deal with them cautiously. And that's the appropriate, honest thing to do. That's the way a judge instructs a jury in a trial, that if someone has, has had some difficulty uh, and, and it reflects on their integrity, then you have to take them with a grain of salt and look to other evidence as to whether they're telling you the truth or not. So we, we use that rule all the time. All the, the, the basic rules of evidence and always testing the integrity of everything we did. So, and, and that's the product is this you know, enormous report with uh, all kinds of records. And one of the things that this led you to is that Pete Rose was spending so much money gambling on baseball that he had to take loans and a lot of those loans came from the mob. So we come full circle in your career. Well, that's right. And he was, when you're dealing with the wise guys on Long Island, he owed them a half a million dollars. The going rate for loan sharks is six for five. So for every $5 he owed, he had to pay six. What I told Faye and Bart is organized crime has a mortgage on the manager of the Cincinnati Reds. Now, how do you record that in Cooperstown? But that was the fact. That's a fact of life. They owned the manager. They owned him because he, he was so in debt. That's the terrible thing about the case, and that's a good reason to make it a capital crime. People will not go see a game if they don't believe it's being played honestly. And if they find out this guy's got a mortgage and the mortgage is being held by the biggest bookmaker and loan shark on Long Island, you know, there's a real problem with how he's going to run that game. By the way, it's been noted that apparently whenever he bet on his own team, he bet for it. That does not, in your view, minimize the gravity of what he did. No, because once he's bet on, you know, he's betting five to 7000 a week. Once he's bet money, his own money, on the game, he is serving two masters. He can go right back to the Bible, if you will. You know, he cannot serve two masters. He's got to serve the integrity of the game, not his own financial interest. So it doesn't, it's irrelevant which way he bets. But Pete was dumb enough to open that question up. You know, I didn't, you know, I only bet for him. Well, okay, Pete, then there were times when you did not bet when certain people were pitching. And that's, if you talk to every bookmaker, they said we knew the Reds would lose because Pete would not bet when Gullickson pitched or someone else pitched or Mario Soto pitched because Pete didn't believe that they would win. 
So he was sending the same message to the bookmakers when he declined to bet at all. And there were many times when he he did not place a bet on the Reds. So it you can you can get there, but it's it doesn't matter. Well, that's a that's a perspective changer for me. That it's not only about what he did bet on, but what he did not bet on. Right. So let me ask you, because you brought up let let's. Let's end this conversation with the beginning. You talked about your baptism. You just referred to the Bible and not being able to serve two masters. And I just stumbled across a story by Murray Chass from August 24th, 1989. So this would be after the banishment agreement was signed, correct? I think so, yes. Both uh, Mr. Giamatti and Reuven Katz, Mr. Rose's lawyer, said they had made no deal about reinstatement. It's not automatic, uh, nor is it guaranteed. And here's the quote from Bart Giamatti. The burden to show a redirected, reconfigured, rehabilitated life is entirely Pete Rose's. It almost sounds like, well, maybe there is a, a place for forgiveness. And you sound like the kind of guy who's willing to forgive certain offenses on some level. Right. Do you think that there is any way that Pete Rose should be forgiven to the extent that he is reinstated? No, he's not reconfigured his life. He's not a credit to the game. It has been so easy to reconfigure his life. One, he's got to stop gambling because it's so destructive, and he hasn't done that. Number two, he needed to go to every major league city and, and tell the kids how corrosive gambling is and how destructive it is and how it violates the integrity of the game, which he has not done. My sense from Faye Vincent is, even if Rose had turned his life around, I mean, the, if the gravity of the offense was so great and so fundamentally threatened the sport, why reinstate him? I'm hearing something slightly different from you, that if, if he had turned his life around and come totally clean and, and went around and sent a message to the kids that, yes, I did wrong, I hope you can learn from my example that you, John Dowd, might today be saying, let him back in. I might, but I also agree with Faye um, in dealing with the other cases that followed Rose. Uh, one thing came through, and that is the historic force of the rule. It keeps, I mean, Lenny Dykstra said, thank God you got Pete. He said, it stopped, I stopped gambling when you did that. So the, the rule has tremendous force. Nolan Ryan called in the day that Bart announced that Pete was, was uh, out of the game. And he said, on behalf of the other 2,000 professional baseball players, we want to thank you because the rule is designed to protect us all. And that's, that's a very powerful statement is we tend to focus on Rose instead of the game and the other players who obey the rule every single day. So, um, you know, I, I, uh, while I would consider, um, I'm not saying I would do it, because there is tremendous historical force uh, in this rule, and it keeps these very competitive uh, young men honest. And uh, if we don't do that, we lose the game. How old did you say you are? Uh, I've just turned 74. And you just left the firm of? Aiken, Gump, Strauss, Harenfeld. We spoke briefly on the phone a few weeks ago, 
And you told me, and this really struck me, you, you said you are not retiring. You are now in private practice, you do consulting, and there's a reason you're not retiring. Tell me why. I learned from my father, who was a great gentleman I ever knew, extraordinary uh, what he did in his professional life as a great American retailer. Well, he's a great father of eight children. I learned from him that when he got through working, he retired completely at his home in Chatham, Massachusetts, and wasn't in the trade, despite enormous opportunities to consult. And so I saw him decline because he wasn't mentally engaged in what he loved to do. So um, for that reason, um, I love what I do. I love taking care of people. And I think it's good for me uh, to stay sharp and stay engaged, et cetera. And, and I, you know, I never dreamed I'd make it to 74 after some of the cases that I tried. But I am, and I feel terrific. And the doctor tells me I'm just fine. And so, you know, I think it, I think it works. So I think you've got to stay what I call in the fight, engaged intellectually, and also being, you know, doing, sharing sort of the bounty of your experience with other people. And that's why I like helping, you know, the Marines and sailors and special forces, Navy SEALs. There are, there are a lot of these people and their families that need our help. So there's a lot, I, I, I love doing my pro bono work. I never had the chance when I was being very well paid to try cases, but now I, I do. So it's, it's a lot of fun. You said you never thought, given the cases you had, you'd live to 74, and you were not referring there to your life being in danger. You're referring to the hard work that you have put in. Carol still finds me napping now when I get a chance and I say, well, I'm sleep deprived for trying cases for 40 years. But, I, you know, I, I feel very grateful, really. I mean, I thought I didn't know whether I could survive it. It was so hard, and that's what those cases take. And I think back to your, I think back to your, uh, your fractured ankle uh, in boot in boot camp, right. and I wonder, I wonder about the connection between that experience and you being able to persevere through the two-hour nights for all those months. Oh yes, uh, you you just never lose it once you you know overcome and completed it. Just getting it done and doing it right gave you a lot of confidence. Well, John Dowd, uh, thank you for joining me on Wavemaker Conversations, and I'm going to thank you by pulling a phrase that you just used a, a short while ago. Thank you for sharing the bounty of your experience. You bet, Mike. You've been listening to Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. If you find this podcast enriching, I hope you'll subscribe for free on iTunes. If you don't know how, just go to my homepage on the new CBS podcasting platform, Play It. That's play.it slash Wavemaker and click on the purple iTunes logo. Or you can go to my website, wavemaker.me. Once you subscribe for free, the weekly episodes are delivered automatically to your phone or computer. And then every traffic jam, every train ride, every flight becomes an opportunity to get smarter. Thanks to my editor, Brian Morris. I'm Michael Schulder. Thank you for listening to Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious.